the second episode of this series, we dive into the multiple social determinants that strengthen or weaken our access to mental health care. The speakers, Dr. Travis Heath and Lamia Bagastravala, discuss how to navigate these factors in today's world. Dr. Heath is the chair of San Diego State University's Department of Counseling and School Psychology. He's a licensed psychologist who takes a cultural democracy over the traditional multicultural approach to counseling individuals. He has over two decades of experience in the field and we recommend you listen to his TED Talk on Communities of Care after this episode. Our second speaker, Lamia Bagastravala, is a doctoral candidate at Michigan State University researching school psychology. She has eight years of experience practicing as a school counselor and a private psychotherapist. As a researcher, she intends to ask questions and seek answers to make school psychology more intentionally intersectional and socially just. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, I'm Ahana from Tangent and I'm super, super excited to be here today. Maybe just to kick off the conversation, I would love to hear from the both of you in terms of what your journey has looked like as professionals in this space and how do you understand accessibility and mental health? Namia, would you like to begin? Right at the start, I'm going to position myself as a middle-class cisgendered Muslim woman who was living in India for 30 years and who accessed mental health care in India. I also want to mention that I recently moved to the United States where I am no longer middle-class. I am Asian and I am identified as a person of color. I find it important to mention this here because I feel like my understanding of accessibility and accessibility of mental health care has really changed this year, ever since I moved to the United States. In terms of my own journey, I completed my training in clinical psychology back in India and then practiced as as a psychotherapist for almost about, I think, eight years. And I was involved in working with schools, particularly as systems for targeted prevention and mental health promotion. And then eventually, of course, I had my private practice. The way I look at accessibility and mental health, I think for me, it's a large mind map and a web of words because I feel like issues of accessibility are embedded within, like I said, the context that you are in. What seemed accessible to me back when I was in India is no longer accessible to me because of how my identities are being constructed where I am and how I'm being seen where I am. I think when we speak about intersectionality and we speak about privilege and we speak about how identities are so socially derived, there's a lot of space to talk about that when we talk about accessibility in the context of mental health care. But I think for me, what really stands out when I think about accessibility and mental health care is that It's contextually defined, but it seems very universal to me. And I think that's something we need to look at because if we really have to address issues of accessibility in mental health care, it has to be done keeping in mind the context that we are working in and the systems of oppression and the structural inequities that we are really targeting within that context. Travis, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I mean, my training, I I have a master's degree in couple and family therapy here in the United States. And then I decided to get a PhD after that. So I was in school for eight to 10 years, whatever that amounted to. And to be honest, found my formal training to be of little use to what I'm doing now. It's of some use. It wasn't all worthless, but it's of little use to what I'm trying to do now for whatever that's worth. I think accessibility, the first story that comes to mind for me when I was completing my master's program, uh, the school of Pepperdine University is in a very affluent area of Los Angeles. And so that's where my classes were taking place. Then we had an outside practicum site. And my outside practicum site was in South Los Angeles. 
And South Los Angeles is mostly black and brown folks, lower socioeconomic status, that kind of thing. And I would notice that when the young people I was working with in Malibu, California, where Pepperdine is, the more affluent area, when they would get like caught with marijuana or something at school, they'd get to go to the Betty Ford Clinic. They'd get to go get treatment, they'd say, and help. And when the young people I was working with in South Los Angeles had the same offense, they went to jail. And the younger version of me, the 22-year-old version, who was maybe a little bit more naive, was like, oh, well, there must be a misunderstanding here, right? Hey, there's this place where people can go, right? And they can get access. Of course, now, 20 years later, I look back and that's extremely naive, right? But for me in that moment, it was just like, oh, there's this place. Of course, you can go there too, but you can't go there, right? Because of, I mean, financial implications are a major one, but there are other social implications there as well. Of course, in the United States, in this sort of late capitalist way of operating, this particular recipe of late capitalism that the United States is operating under, I don't know how we find accessibility there. The word that came up to me was politics. So when we think about accessibility, then we're no longer just talking about, oh, yes, we have certain services that are available in this geographical location, or we have this available, say, a kilometer from here. We're also talking about who's allowed to walk into some spaces and who decides who's allowed and who's not. What are maybe right off the bat some of the most obvious factors that are either enabling somebody's journey towards accessing mental health care? And what might be certain factors that might hold them back? Thanks for bringing that up, Ahana. I think at the outset, I want to also recognize that the ability to sit back and reflect on how my identities are being shaped by a context is privilege in itself, right? And that comes from the social location I have held for the last 30 years when I was back in India. When I think about really what influences that access to mental health care, and Travis really brought up a few of those factors, and I'm thinking about the Indian context. And when I was working with clients, and I remember my training happened in a government setting, a government hospital, which was providing mental health services, particularly psychiatric outpatient and inpatient services to people from the lower socioeconomic strata Mm -hmm. and was providing it at a nominal cost, often providing medication for free. And I realized that a lot of the factors that influence are at various levels, right? So we speak about I think every time conversations around stigma happen, we somehow situate that at a very individual level. We talk about it in terms of our personal attitudes towards mental health care. But I think stigma is, again, very sociocultural. Why is mental health care perceived a certain way? Who is defining mental health? How is mental health being defined? How is mental health care being defined? I think these are questions that influence stigma as well. So I have sat there in a government hospital as a trainee therapist, quote unquote, in a service setting which was meant to provide inpatient and outpatient psychiatric services to people who are daily wage earners for whom 10 minutes of not working influences the meals that they're going to be able to provide their home. And there I was sitting there trying to gain experience in providing one hour long therapy sessions and trying to quote unquote seek clients for that. And I think it makes me realize that it's, is this the kind of care that's being sought, right? And is this what the community needs? Or is this what I am 
claiming the community needs and is therefore going to be helpful in what ways can i actually use the existing resources that the community has so i feel like stigma is certainly a huge thing but i feel like that stigma is really associated with a lot of factors in terms of just how mental health and mental health care is being defined and designed within context and i know that back in india a lot of what therapies are being predominantly practiced are models which have been adopted from cultures which are very different and i think the more i have engaged with conversations around therapy in the last 8 years particularly from the perspective of quote and quote evidence based practice it makes you question who's collecting the evidence on whom and for what right and then it brings up all of these questions so i feel like the, the conversation around accessibility to mental health care has to be in terms of both at barriers at the the demand level in terms of what is it that the community actually needs right is it really mental health care or is it services and policies to address casteism or classism and poverty right because we know these are social determinants of mental health so mental health care doesn't mean i need to open up 20 clinics and say hey here you go you have therapists available so that's more of a supply level conversation right okay we're going to train more therapists but what are we training them in who is training them right like my training beautifully taught me crenshaw's intersectionality great right but i don't remember the model ever having an axis of caste and i practiced in a context where casteism is prevalent and it's a factor that really influences access to mental health care because there is no way that i as an urban mental health practitioner who doesn't come from a lower caste can fully understand the lived experiences of a dalit and i have not been trained in that and by training i don't mean cursory conversations around it but i have never been made to reflect on what that means within a mental health care setting so i feel like a lot of these factors when we talk about i think structural sort of inequities they also exist at the training level which also influences access to mental health care yes travis would you like to come in sure first a story came to mind we we'd have folks that were coming to our community mental health clinic and they wouldn't show up consistently and the question that would get asked is well why aren't they showing up and it turned out that that yeah. was the wrong question the better question was why would they show up and it wasn't so much about the services we were providing it's because they had to take in some cases literally seven buses to get there right and as y'all have been mentioning then they had to give up half a day of work or a full day of work depending on what was going on they had kids to tend to who's going to tend to their kids so we'd ask the question why aren't they showing up and when we flip the question now and we say well why would they show up i mean that i think starts to get at accessibility i've also heard the idea of what does the community need and I think unfortunately across cultures and I won't I can't be a spokesperson of course for every culture but it's been my humble observation that across cultures often people in relative positions of power are speaking about what people who aren't need or what they should want or need right and so this idea of communities speaking on behalf of their own healing I think is a really important one also then the question of like well what is mental health and when we start talking about training and what's getting addressed and why it's getting addressed or what's not getting addressed and why it's not i don't even know what mental health means i sure as heck hear a lot of people use that phrase but i'm not even sure what it means to be honest with you and so i think what happens then sometimes with our training is that 
we're not questioning even the basic terms that are the foundation of what we're building our practices and our trainings around, right? So then we just accept whatever historically has been done, which had its place. It may still have some place today, but it's not universal. I don't believe anyways, in terms of training. Other factor that I think is important and why things might get addressed or why they might not get addressed is healthcare, especially in the United States, it's been turned into a commodity to be bought and sold. That includes mental health care. At least through my training programs, we didn't even have a class that talked about how you talk about money or compensation, let alone addressing the politics that underlie that sort of thing, right? And this is something that's uncomfortable. I think for most of us that get into the field, we don't want to deal with that sort of thing. So with money, I mean, we, we want to help people, right? That's trite, but that's sort of the standard line. We want to help people and we don't want to mess with that. And perhaps an unfortunate byproduct of that then is, is we're not addressing the politics that underlie this that, that are problematic. And my practice operates from a fairly place. I mean, I have a radical sliding fee scale, but I can afford to do that because I have another job in academia. There's one other point that I want to bring up, which is that it's really unfortunate that often people who are providing care for those who might be most in need are the people with the least amount of training. Now, when I say this, I'm not trying to take a shot at the people without a lot of training. I think they're providing the best service that they can because of the various factors we've already been talking about disproportionately don't have access to anyone with the kind of experience that, or a team of people with the kind of experience that might benefit them substantially. And we just sort of accept that, right? It's like, well, the trainee will go to this place for six months or 12 months, or if you're lucky, 18 months, and they'll provide, and then they move on. And that's the model. And by the way, the trainee oftentimes is being paid next to nothing. I think if we start asking some of those questions in our training, it risks undermining the whole foundation that this is built upon. And I think people would rather not do that. They'd rather just, that's sort of like, well, the model works. It doesn't actually work, but it works well for the people that are in positions of privilege. Folks don't, don't want to ask questions of that and don't want to undermine that because what might it mean? I feel that, especially in India, on paper, we have programs that are meant to promote mental health and are supposed to take care of communities. We have the National Mental Health Program, we have the District Mental Health Program. Nami, I think I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I feel like at, at a policy and programmatic level in India, I think we have some things really working for us. I feel there have been efforts, I will say that, right? And some seemingly promising efforts. I also feel like practice and for the lack of a better word, research needs to sort of work hand in hand is because the implementation of a lot of programs becomes very questionable. So if you look at, and I may not have the numbers on me right now, but I think if you look at the 2022 budget, I think 0.8% went to mental health. And from that, if I'm not wrong, I think about more than 90% of the funding went to tertiary mental health care services, which is largely, I think, a few institutes in India who provide tertiary health care services. It wasn't even to like practitioners, right? Yeah. So that really leaves out 5% of the mental health budget that the government has, which is going to programs like the NMHP and the DMHP that you're talking about. That's also going into budgets to have the state mental health authorities. If we're really going to have an NMHP in place, we can't just rely on one district officer in a psychiatric hospital, like you said, who's sitting four hours away from the community villages, who's going to run the program, right? It's not going to be something that can result in the effects that we are hoping for it to have. So I feel like these programs have been targeted at the community. 
but I think going back to what we've been discussing, we have not really looked at how the community can be involved in that. And I know that programs like the RKSK tried to have like a peer educator program, but again, this brings us back to questions of who's designing this and who is it for? Because both on paper, they seem like mental health promotion initiatives. This, if you look at the content of the programs, they're still tertiary care initiatives, right? We're not really looking at, even if I adopt the more commonly held notion of what mental health is, right? And what all of the organizations define mental health as, it's still not targeting mental health prevention in that way. I think that there was, I don't know the name of the program, but if I'm not wrong, the one where I think Dr. Pathare and their team were working on that program, right? Now that's a community-based intervention. Again, I don't want to talk more about the program because I haven't read about the effectiveness of the program and what that was like, but I do know that that was an effort towards involving the community in designing and implementing the program, right? And I'm just wondering that if that could be done at a national level. I feel like India has been one of those nations where there have been a lot more initiatives which are more community mental health based and more community oriented. Using those principles might be a better way to actually mobilize the resources that we have at the national level. This, however, cannot be a substitute for just the lack of funding or the lack of resources that the government provides to mental health care in the country. But yeah. And I guess what I'm also beginning to think about, be curious about, is the idea that while we're talking about programs and we're talking about, okay, how do we reach out to the community, we're also essentially debating this idea that making services available may not be the same as making them accessible, right? And we're trying to draw the distinction between the two. Travis, what have been some of your experiences and what are your thoughts on this dichotomy perhaps between availability and accessibility? Yeah, that's an important one. I feel like there have been efforts, various efforts to make things more available. But as you pointed out so aptly, that doesn't necessarily mean they're accessible. And then we go back to what is it the community needs? And a lot of what I've seen is what professionals are telling communities that they need. I haven't seen a lot that's been driven by insiders in the community. Where I have seen that, it exists outside the boundaries of mental health. And those are usually the most effective programs for mental health, somewhat ironically. Like what I mean is that some of the work I was involved with in Denver, youth who were in street gangs and that sort of thing, traditional mental health basically failed these young people. And one of the reasons they failed these young people is because having someone come and sit in an office for 50 minutes and sit across from someone usually dressed in a suit or dressed in something that shows that they're fairly well to do and talk about their lives was so foreign that this isn't what they were asking for. Now there, there was funding sometimes around this sort of thing, but so it was available to an extent, but it wasn't accessible, right? Even it wasn't accessible. Even once the young person had gotten into the therapy room, it still wasn't accessible. If that makes sense. But there were community initiatives where you had members of the community who used to be involved in street gangs, right? Who now were trying to help young people not necessarily just exit street gangs, but deal with the complexity of living in a world where street gangs may be the only thing that feels like family, right? And when things got dealt with that way at a community-based level, guess what? You started seeing better results. And so in that way, I think psychology, especially psychiatry, 
maybe social work, at least in the United States, to an extent, maybe a larger extent than they, they want to be, need to reimagine how we deal with quote unquote mental health issues. Because right now we're pretty two-dimensional and the two dimensions are you can come get therapy or something that resembles therapy, or you can get medication. And that's kind of it. I mean, if you bring up community, they'll be like, well, we have group therapy. Yeah, that's not really a community-based intervention, right? So yes, I have seen programs, but the ones that I see that are most beneficial for mental health aren't connected to mental health. I mean, officially. And that should be disturbing to us, I think. Those of us that are psychologists, counselors, mental health workers of any kind, what we should probably be doing is having some humility and stepping back and going like, whoa, I wonder what it is about these things that aren't in our tent, aren't under our umbrella that are working. Like, why might that be working? I'll tell a quick story. Scott Miller, he was talking about how he would notice that people, I think it was people who had lost a child, right? It's a very difficult experience. Would like They would go to psychics, right? And after they would speak with psychics, they would feel better. Now, of course, what tends to happen in our profession is we dismiss psychics as pseudoscience or whatever. And he said, look, I'm not saying I believe that someone's psychic or not, or I believe in any of that. What I'm saying is they go into that room feeling a certain kind of way, and they come out of it feeling a different way. What's happening there, right? Now, that I don't want this to be misinterpreted saying that all of us should be trained in becoming psychics. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I have such an ability, but rather just that we have some humility and we think about why is it that if someone is suffering, struggling in a certain kind of way and something happens and they end up feeling better, why? What's happening there? And are there things that we're missing in the way that we've usually done things? And that to me starts to get more at the accessibility part because quite possibly psychics are more accessible than we are. Now we could either say something like, oh, well, that's pseudoscience, or we could say something demeaning, or we could say something pompous, we could do all of that. Or we could humble ourselves and ask questions about that and wonder like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what's happening there. I wonder what I might be able to learn from what's transpiring there, right? Because we are pretty one trick ponies. I mean, even the way we think about therapy is it's so bland, right? It rarely has much flavor. And in this day and age, Mamiya said something about evidence. And I love that idea too, the politics of evidence, but it's this evidence-based practice. Stuff. And again, who's evidence? Who has the politics to decide what's evidence and what's not evidence? Why and how does that happen? Sometimes when I have these conversations with folks, they'll say, oh, so you're against evidence. Not at all. I think evidence is wonderful. I think we should seek out evidence. I just want to know what gets storied as evidence and what does not and why and who gets to do it. So when we think about why sometimes in the mental health profession, our interventions are so bland, I think it's often because we have this very restricted view of what's possible. And what I believe will eventually happen is our profession will, will die out. I mean, I'm not saying that'll happen in our lifetime, but people are going to start going other places, right? They're going to start doing what works or what serves their needs. And perhaps that's why some communities have never really sought our services to begin with. Even when you have someone that sort of looks the part or, or when psychology says, look how much more diverse we're getting. Okay, maybe you are getting diverse by the numbers, although psychology probably still has a little ways to go there too, but maybe you are, but you're not diversifying your practices. You may be diversifying the faces that are on the brochure, but you're not diversifying your practices. I really, at this point, I want to share a project that actually 
talks about exactly what, what you just shared about combining traditional faith healing along with medicine. Namya, you probably already know about this, is that in the state of Gujarat, there's a darga, there's a shrine, where there's this one project that has been run called the Dava Dua project. So Dava means medicine, Dua means wish, or essentially like prayers, right? So it's the Dava Dua project where essentially it's one shrine where people come and they receive medical support and people also get to engage in healing practices and faith-based practices. And one of the reasons why it worked is because it's not questioning the community's ideas around what meaning they draw from certain practices that they believe supports their well-being. So if faith and if prayers and if engaging in certain religious practices affirms my journey towards care, and that's what's accessible to me, but if that's constantly getting transgressed and violated and that's constantly getting dismissed in quote unquote mental health care because we only believe in say sanitized clinically practices, that's where we are drawing barriers between what is available and accessible. I guess what I'm thinking at this point is then where do we go from here? What have been some of the things that you're holding on to as practitioners, as trainers, What's working in your context and where do you think we can go from here in terms of talking about accessibility and working towards accessibility? That's a tough one, Ahana. I don't know if this answer might be different if it wasn't 10.30 p.m. at the end of during my first semester in, well, very white dominant culture. I think I want to pick up where Travis left because I think that's something I have been debating. I feel like this is a question I deal with almost on a daily basis is when I enter a space, what do I want to learn from that space and not what I have to offer, right? Because I feel like a lot of my training constantly trains me in what I'm supposed to offer and what I'm expected to offer with all these caveats, right? Oh, you offer this model, but remember there are like culturally and linguistically diverse students. Oh, you offer this, but you remember this entire framework is like heterosexist, ableist, rooted in principles of white supremacy. And I'm just like, okay, you're telling me what I'm supposed to offer with all of these caveats, right? And I'm in field practicum right now. I go to a school. A lot of my training helps me analyze systems and go and look back and appraise the psychology, appraise the system, tell us what's working, tell us what's not working. And I feel like I'm constantly in this space where I want to know what is it that this space needs? What is it that this space is asking for? And I think it really boils down to the word that Travis used because I've been trying to I've been sitting with that word a lot in terms of humility and what does that mean when I clearly enter a space where a lot of my training positions me in a powerful place, right? In very unknown ways. Humility also means being able to, I think one is saying I don't know, but one is also saying that I know I have the power in this space and I know I come in with some training that makes me feel powerful, right? At least within this context. And then being able to use that humility or being able to stake that stance of humility towards that power and question what needs to be questioned. Because I feel like the onus cannot be on the marginalized group to question, right? At all times. They're going to try and resist. They will resist. They will push a system that's not working for them. We're all active agents, but It can't, the onus can't be on them. The onus has to be on me as a practitioner as well, because I'm entering that space with some power, 
So I feel like that humility also has to play out on that front of acknowledging that when I enter a space, that is when I say those words that I'm a first year doctoral student in a graduate school program, there is communication of some power there. I'm most inspired by work that's happening. Like some of my colleagues here at San Diego State, we're trying to reimagine our clinic right now. And Marcela Polanco, she instituted actually a few years back, the idea of one session therapy, and it was walk-in, right? People from the community could come in and do one meeting. And again, this was meeting people where they were at and what they wanted. We're just talking ways to sort of how do we kind of occupy a street corner, something like that? Not only that, but maybe do so along alongside lawyers, for example, because many of the people we work with are so-called undocumented in the United States, right? And are, are looking for lawyers among other services. But this sort of stuff is what's interesting and what's inspiring to me, right? Because I feel like it's doing what, what we've been talking about or it's attempting to. It's giving a good faith effort to try and meet the community where where they want to be met. And so that's the kind of thing that inspires me. One other thing I'll say, and this is a continual process for me, is how do we take theories and ideas and put those into practice? The type of work that we all do, I mean, it's a practice. It's not a philosophy. I mean, philosophy can be of use, but I think one of the big challenges is how do we take all of our big, fancy, flowery words of equity and and all of this, and how do we actually turn it into a practice that we can identify what the practice is, we can facilitate it with others, we can grow it together, because if all we have is a theory... Like I I went a couple of years ago to see a colleague, a master's program, had students that were practicing therapy and they were nice enough to invite me and I'm watching this happen. And the way it started out, okay, they were like, it was like a white male therapist and the guy's like, well, I recognize that I have privilege in these ways and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, okay, this is starting out in an interesting way. Then they finished that first two minutes and just went into therapy as usual. And it it was stunning because it was like, oh, that's just sort of a rehearsed two-minute spiel at the beginning. But the actual meat of the practice is practice as usual. So I guess what I'm saying there too is we have to go beyond just sort of the appearance of this. And we have to look at how these threads run deeply through our practice, right? Whether we're talking about social justice or whether we're talking about equity, pick your anti-racism, pick your favorite buzzwords of the day, which are being thrown around all the time now, I notice in therapy, but without with very little regard for how showing up in practice. We're looking at almost releasing ourselves from this role of being just therapists, quote unquote. We're also looking at allyship, even within among professionals. So maybe if I'm working with a lawyer, if I'm working with a social worker, it's not just about working with them. Sometimes it can also be about what can I learn from you? We're not looking at mental health care as something that has to be tackled by quote-unquote experts. We're also looking at really asking people, what is it that you need? I'm also thinking about how maybe reimagining accessibility looks different for all of us. There's probably universality in the idea of it, but it has to be contextually derived. The idea of moving towards reimagining accessibility probably means that we need to do away with the idea that there is a monolithic idea that we have to, that all of us have to prescribe to. Maybe it has to look different for all of us. Thank you both for also hopping onto this conversation, having it with us. This has been a really important conversation for me as well. So thank you to the both of you for joining this space and having this conversation with us. 